how does the Christian's view of God inform our understanding of the roles of husband and father? Andrew Walker hosts a panel discussion with Nathan Lino, John Powell, Eric Erickson, and Aaron Ivey on biblical manhood and marriage. We hope you find this panel helpful. Uh, my name is Andrew Walker, and I'm joined by my friends Nathan Lino, pastor in Houston, Eric Erickson, who is a political commentator who runs a website called The Resurgent, my friend John Powell, who's a pastor in the Houston area as well, and also a fellow Southwest Baptist University alum like myself. And then rounding out the panel, we have Aaron Ivey, who's a worship pastor from Austin Stone Church. The first question I have is for the whole panel, and I want to talk about this notion of the fatherhood of God. And, and how, how does the fatherhood of God, that we know God as Father, how does that inform our own pursuit of fatherhood? And Nathan, we'll start with you. Well, I think our beginning place is, apart from God, we have no idea what fatherhood is. Hmm. Because he is truth, apart from him, we have no idea what that word even means. And so, obviously then, receiving uh, God's fatherhood, both understanding it through his word and then passing it on to our children, comes from us as fathers coming to know God personally and deeply as we father our children, and we cannot pass on, we can neither know nor pass on the fatherhood of God to our children unless we personally know him ourselves. So I think that's our starting place, is apart from God, we don't know what fatherhood is, and so coming to know him through his word is essential. Maybe, fair or not, one of the very first words that pop into my head in that question is disciplinarian. Um, to, to guide and to discipline, and, and not to discipline with the negative connotation, but just to help shape our kids. There's this idea this day and age that we should have free-range kids who, who develop their own character. Uh, I, I don't want my kids to develop their own character. I, I want them to have a character that is more reflective of my faith and values. And so being able to, to guide them in that way to shape my kids uh, to provide the rule book for them for what's right and what's wrong, to discipline them when they are wrong, and hopefully that over time they will reflect those values more. John? I think of two words when I think of fatherhood, and that's protection and provision. Both of those we receive from our father. Um, but not just provision in going to work, bringing home a paycheck, and then sitting on the couch. It's a continual provision of stability, of order, of uh, emotional connectedness, um, and, and of home building, like a provision that runs deep to the, to the smallest granular aspect of who we are. I think whenever we contemplate the idea of God being our father, the only reason he is our father is because he has sacrificed so deeply of himself to make us his children. So, to contemplate the idea of God as Father is to contemplate one who is giving of himself sacrificially to make us his own and to shape us into who he wants us to be. Aaron, any final thoughts on that? Yeah, I have uh, four kids, and I think all the time, like, how hard parenting is with God. You know, I have Jesus. Like, I have the Holy Spirit. I can't imagine what it would be like to parent and not know God, not to have God as my father and have that relationship with him. And so for me, my perspective on this is like, I have found myself needing to know Father God, my Abba Father, more now than I have in my entire life. Um, and I want my kids to see what God looks like. And um, I'm trusting and knowing that the role that he's given me as a father is to help reflect and demonstrate what it looks like to know God as a heavenly father. So I'm more dependent upon that than I ever have in my entire life. And I think a major part of being a father to our kids is to, to reflect what it looks like to know him as a father. So one of the most difficult issues right now in the culture facing the culture broadly, but and then men in particular, is the issue of, of pornography. And several of you on this stage are pastors, and I'm sure you're aware of of the ubiquity and how common pornography usage is in the local church. And it's also one of the greatest threats to our, um, our marriages, to our homes, uh, to how we parent. 
So how do we as men, as biblical men and fathers and husbands, how do we combat the temptations that come with pornography? What, what steps do we put in place um, as, as leaders in our home to make sure that we don't fall prey to, to that temptation? And this is for the whole panel as well. Uh, well, obviously, we want to take steps to limit our exposure to pornography, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but we also want to understand that, that no matter how many steps we take to limit our exposure to pornography, we are going to see it. Yeah. I really believe if our starting place in this day and age is that we think we can disciple someone to the point or set up someone's life in such a way that they're not going to see pornography, we're fooling ourselves and doing them a disservice. Mm-hmm. My wife and I were flying somewhere uh, not too long ago. We boarded the airplane. Uh, we're sitting in our two seats, a man up two rows and across the aisle. Is, we're waiting for the door of the plane to close, so everyone's still on, their, on the internet. And he's, he's uh, literally uh, FaceTiming with this very scantily clad woman live with the phone up. My wife and I are just sitting there. You cannot not see pornography. We got a guy in our church uh, where, where, you know, people commute 45 minutes each way to downtown Houston from out in the suburbs, and they, they start carpooling in these rental vans where eight people share a van that drives them downtown and back out every day. And we got a guy in our church who's godly, loves the Lord with all his heart, loves his wife and kids, pure of heart. And the guy sits next to him in the van, looks at porno videos on his phone with headphones in on the way to work. You cannot not see it. That's where we're at. So I, I think one of the questions we need to establish is the local, one of the, the standards and understandings we need as the local church in this day and age, if we're going to disciple people, is our starting place is not assuming someone can live without this uh, availability or accessibility. We live in Corinth, mm-hmm. but the good news is the Bible was, there's a book in the Bible to Corinth about sexual brokenness, meaning the power of the Spirit is greater than the pull of the sin. And so... Uh, there is a way to live redemptively through the power of Christ. There's a lot more we could say about this issue, but I, I, I think it's foundational to understand as a church that your people, men and women, are going to see pornography. Mm-hmm. And we must disciple them with that in mind. Yeah. Eric, any thoughts? I did an interview uh, a while back with a victim of human trafficking and, and several others uh, on this topic of human trafficking. One of the, the statistics that came out that was so interesting was that the availability of pornography now, your typical middle school boy will see it. Uh, and Absolutely. by the time they're in high school, they'll be a regular partaker of pornography. And it, race doesn't have any impact. Income doesn't have any impact. Geography has no impact. Education of the parents has no impact. There is one set of boys that defy the statistic. Uh, and it, too, is separated from demography geography, income, and that is if a father tells a son it's wrong and engages with the son, that boy is less likely to view pornography than all the other boys. And it doesn't matter about age, it doesn't matter about income, it doesn't matter about uh, race, anything. Having an active father say it's wrong uh, and explaining to them what it is. Um, and that really sticks out in my mind, one, how common it is, uh, and two, uh, making sure that our kids don't expect it. It, it. Being in the secular world, I do a talk radio show, and this topic comes up occasionally, and I'm shocked by the number of people who will call in or, or will tweet and say, well, they're going to see it anyway, as if it's no big deal. Um, so should we give your kid uh, alcohol and car keys? Because, I mean, that, that's just as common. Uh, no, uh, just because something is common doesn't make it right. And reinforcing that message, not just with pornography, but across the board and morals and ethics, that things that are common aren't necessarily right, and that applies to this, and in particular for sons, uh, to reiterate, uh, as it becomes more and more common for boys to engage with this. And it was never the best practice, but there has been, in recent memory, generations where you could have isolated your family from this. You could have kept magazine subscriptions away and just created a hedge around them where they didn't have to interact with it. But it is everywhere now, and it is impossible to keep them from it. And so the best way to do this, I've found as a parent, is simply to educate early and often about uh, pornography. And so when I have the sex talk with my kids, immediately that transitions into a talk of where they're going to see this. And I was amazed talking to my seven-year-old son. He learned 
just 30 minutes prior what sex was and then told me, oh, I've seen this. And I said, where? And he said, in the eyes of the woman on the billboard by the airport. Now that's a billboard right next to a strip club. And it is the way that she is looking that he defined as sexual. And so I, I was... I was kind of shocked at first, thinking that my seven-year-old had seen pornography, and certainly this is a version of it. Our grandparents would have called that rated X, but what they would have had to have subscribed to a magazine to see, we now see on billboards everywhere. Um, so I told, I just give my kids this very simple thing, wherever you see it, if it's on a device, if it's on your friend's device, if it's on my phone, whatever it is, drop whatever it is on the ground, and I will not be mad at you for breaking my iPad. I can buy another one of those. But I want you to have me near you to put this into proper categories so that I can shape how you're thinking about pornography for the rest of your life. So um, in our sex talk, I tell them, uh, come to me the first few times that you see this so that I can train you in how to think Mm -hmm. about it. And um, I I hope that they do. I, I haven't had them do this yet, but this is, this is my hope for my family. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I yeah, think Aaron. that's one of the, one of the main, main keys, man. Like when I was growing up, pornography wasn't talked about in our house, even though it was, it was there, it was available. It's just not a conversation that was going on. So I think one of the, one of the keys is actually talking about it, um, you know, resisting the, the fear of it feeling awkward or it being, you know, this weird thing you got to talk about but it just always being a part of conversation. We, we decided early on that uh, we were going to, in, in an age-appropriate way, always talk about what sexuality is. And uh, that's paying off now that three of our kids are teenagers, that it's very normal to talk about these sort of things. And so, you know, it's, it's in front of them all the time. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, one of my kids was shown pornography uh, from a, a friend in a classroom, right, on the phone. So it's, it's coming at them all the time, whether it's a Facebook ad or something that just pops up on YouTube. And so we try to create an environment where we're always talking about it. And then I think second is like having no, no, no blind eyes of going, hey, what can we put with filters and with other things in our household to make sure that there are safeguards? We use a thing called Disney Circle, which is yeah, amazing. That. And uh, it's been a game changer. So every device in our, in our house, every Apple TV, every uh, device is connected to that and we can control them from our phones and time limits and all that kind of stuff has been really helpful. Speaking of the Disney, my kid is texting me right now asking if they can get more more time time on the internet. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it it blocks it out. Uh They get a four-hour max window and it's blocked out now. Not going to get any more. Andrew, I think there's another side to this. See what you'll think. We can't just present our sons and the the men in our churches with don't pornography. Mm -hmm. We also need to present them with a better alternative. Everywhere you look in the scripture where it talks about sexual brokenness, it presents a better alternative, that God's way is better. We don't verbalize that in our homes to our children. We don't verbalize that to our church members. Our children need to hear all the time from dad and mom, if dad and mom are married and still in the home. They need to hear from that dad and mom, sex God's way is awesome. It's amazing. We love it. We love having sex with each other in age-appropriate ways. But they need that, that they need, listen, when, when they see pornography, what they're seeing is culture saying this way's awesome. Mm-hmm. And yet they don't hear Christ's bride saying, no, this way's awesome. Mm-hmm. So this side's silent mm. while this side's debating. Right. So our children think this side has nothing to offer. And this side is conceding and saying, yeah, you're right, that side, we, got, we can't compete with that. So we, and, and, and listen, no one else is going to be the voice in your kid's life competing with culture's voice on this issue. If they don't think dad and mom think sex God's way is the greatest thing ever, why should they buy into it? So I think in age-appropriate ways, we regularly need to be, I tell my son all the time, man, I love having sex with your mom. It's awesome, you know? <laughs> and uh, Nicole tells my daughters that. I mean, that's, uh, it's what they need to hear because literally every day, that's what culture is telling them. In the opposite. So, uh, and, and, and here's the thing, pastors, the parents of your church are not going to do that. You need to do it for the children of your church. Mm. Periodically, I will just tell my church how, you know, sex God's way is fantastic. It's way better than the alternative. It's awesome. It's not, it's not just awesome because God tells me to believe that by faith. Right. It really is. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, so. I would just say for the record that I would have to pour bleach into my ear cavity if my parents said that to me. Just, <laughs> just, just so. <laughs> well, I, I want to transition to something um, pretty serious. And it, it, this one's for Eric. Uh, but John framed up a, a really good way for us to understand fatherhood. I think you said provider and protector. But I want to talk about kind of leading through suffering and leading through hardship. Because I know if we were to um, survey the audience, there are likely uh, fathers and husbands in here who are going through some really difficult times in the context of their home. Just very briefly, can you talk about just kind of what you've experienced in the last couple of years and, and how have you learned um, to be a, a biblical father and man and husband through that? And how did you stay focused on who God has called you to be in that? Um, so two years ago, I was rushed into an ICU dying. Um, my blood oxygen level about 80%, my lungs and heart shutting down. Uh, over a period of months, I had, my lungs had filled up with blood clots and I didn't realize it. Uh, it was not a, a one-time thing. People talk about you have a pulmonary embolism, you fall over dead. This was ongoing over a period of months. The day I was carried into the ICU, my phone was ringing the entire time. Uh, I couldn't get to it. When I finally got to it, it was my wife telling me the Mayo Clinic had called her. They thought she had lung cancer. Uh, and turns out she has an incurable form of lung cancer. Uh, while I was dying, she gets this. Uh, and uh, we kind of went through the ringer in, in 2016. Uh, we had protesters show up at our house. Um, I, I have a political talk show. People didn't like my opinion, and they showed up at the house. We had to have armed guards. Uh, our kids coming home from school with people asking if I'd been shot. and Did they know I was going to get shot? Uh, my wife actually told her Bible study class at our church that she had lung cancer, and a woman came up to her afterwards and said she'd pray for her, but she wanted to slap me across the face for my political views. Uh, and it was a very rough time. And during that time, I realized there were things I needed my kids to know if something happened to my wife and me. And number one, it was that we loved them uh, and to make sure they understood that that it, to, I think well, a lot of us, we, we treat love as an abstract. Uh, I needed my kids to really know if I was going to die that I really did love them. Uh, and then two, I also wanted them to make sure they understood faith. Uh, and I, I reiterate to them, I, I really do believe there's a heaven and a hell and an eternity, and that if something were to happen, we could see each other again. Uh, but they needed faith. They needed to be able to trust Jesus and not in an abstract way that there's some sky god that he's actually real and there and they can connect with him and uh they can have conversations with him and you may not hear a voice in your room back but it, it's it's something they needed to know uh and i needed to find ways for myself to be able to make myself feel like i was making my family feel safe and the number one way to do that was to really try to get us to focus on our faith uh, and to focus on our values and to understand that while everyone else may be screaming at us, we may have people show up at our house. My kids were, had somebody chase them through a grocery store yelling at them because of me. Uh, and to make sure they understood that they knew what they believed um, and start early on the idea of be sure what you believe. One of the things I wrote about in my book, God in the Transgender Debate, was the problem of kind of excessive gender stereotyping. That in the context of a local church, that we can tell men that the essence of manhood is that you participate in wild game dinners, or there are MMA parties where everyone gets together, and that's the essence of manhood. So how do we engage men in the local church to understand what it means to be a man um, without kind of falling prey to kind of these excessive cultural gender stereotypes? Yeah. Well, I think that's where the, the beauty of the, the family of God um, and putting that on display as church leaders uh, has to be front and center because a family is always made up of very different kinds of people. I think about my own kids, how their personalities are so different. They have different things that make them who they are. And uh, I, I know in, in terms of like men's ministry, if I was in charge of men's ministry just by myself, it would look very different than if you were in charge of it or you were in charge of it or you were in charge of it. So I think this is where a plurality of leadership uh, is key. When, when we're thinking about any kind of ministry and how to, how to really serve men, how to lead them towards Jesus, how to train them up, how to provide an environment where it's engaging and it's fun to be a part of, 
it means you got to have a plurality of leaders speaking into what that culture is going to look like. What are the events going to look like? The one event I would plan if it was just me is going to look very different than if somebody else plans it. And so I think serving men in, in men's ministry and pointing them to Jesus means we have to have multiple people speaking into what that men's ministry looks like because the body of Christ is very diverse. Other thoughts? You know, just going back to what I went through in 2016, one of the overcompensation issues that I dealt with was I work out of the house. I have a TV and a radio studio in my house. I never have to leave. And I discovered I wasn't leaving. And it, there actually is something to be said for camaraderie with other men that you're not surrounded. I mean, I love my wife and kids and they know that, but I don't want to be surrounded by them 24-7, 365. Uh, actually having friends and engaging with other guy friends and just going out and hanging out and talking about life. I am more and more mindful the number of men, I'm 43 now, the number of 30 and 40-year-old men who feel guilty leaving their wife and kids to go hang out with friends, that it's some level of selfishness. I think therapeutically, just mentally, being able to have time with other men and share what's going on in life helps in this regard. I mean, I think this is a major issue plaguing our churches today. Mm -hmm. Men have no conception of what manhood is anymore because we've let culture redefine it. I think it does, it sounds so cliche, but we've got to come back to the scriptures. So what does the Bible say about manhood? Because apart from the Bible, no one knows what manhood is. Mm -hmm. And it does come back to issues like provider and protector. It does come back to issues like consistency. Like, Like, think about it. God is eternal. He's father. He's eternal and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means as your heavenly dad, you can wake up tomorrow and he's going to be the same man he is today. And he was that same man yesterday. Our children have got to wake up tomorrow and their dad's the same man that I was yesterday. And they got to know him. So consistency, predictability, all of that is part of godliness. That's who he is. And so coming back to the scripture, drawing out these key terms that the Bible provides Mm -hmm. to define manhood and teaching it to our men. And then as Aaron is saying, it's God has uniquely wired each one of us with our personality. Mm-hmm. And a man can know protecting your family, for example. It doesn't look like, you know, necessarily I have a ghillie suit to pull on when my daughter's boyfriend's, you know, making <laughs> me mad. It, it, manhood and protector looks like when my 13-year-old daughter is having a sleepover and there's seven friends and they're all spending the night and this is her moment to shine with her friends and they're watching a movie. Mm-hmm. And then I realize the movie needs to be turned off and she's going to hate me for it. Yeah having the guts to get the remote and turning it off. That's what protecting, that's what manhood is. Mm. So whether you're a, a, you know, a chemistry lab scientist with a pocket protector and you've never held a gun in your life, but you're willing to go pick up that remote and turn off that television, yeah. or you're the guy with the ghillie suit and you're not willing to go turn off the television, mm. who's the man? Amen. So manhood's not defined by culture. It's defined by these terms given to us from Scripture because apart from the Bible, we don't know what manhood is. And, and ultimately, I come to you as a stereotypical male, right? I do enjoy hunting and he horseback does. riding. I drive John a pickup. John is manlier than all he, of us. He probably has <laughs> a just established that right now. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, I want my kids to know in 30 years, if God forbid I die in a tragic wreck, I, I don't want them to think about me as the guy that every deer season or dove season, he was always out in the woods. Like, I don't want that to be the definition of manhood to them. I want them to know that to be a man is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is, that is it. So if my sons don't, if my sons grow up to drive a Prius, <laughs> I'll be okay with that, I guess. But, uh, but, but there is so much more to manhood than culturally defined masculinity. It is loving God with everything that you have and living all out for him. And, and for the record, John Powell is someone who can both you know, put a, a gun together, but also sew. So this is, this is a multi-talented individual. So he, he spans there? the spectrum. <laughs> is this spans what we're talking spectrum. about right now? Okay. So my next question is for Nathan and John. You guys are lead pastors or senior pastors. You're preaching every single week. And it's about being a pastor as husband and father. And my question is, is how does God's design for marriage impact your work as a pastor? Well, I mean, in this day and age with the sexual revolution, one of the things a senior pastor has to do is to be willing to stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning and speak to issues that for years have been taboo Mm. in the church. 
Uh, one of the things I've learned is that if I'm not willing to address issues from the Sunday morning pulpit, so to speak, uh, the ice has not been broken for those real conversations that need to be had in smaller group settings to take place. So it's, it's like the church leaders are waiting for me to break the ice, which kind of gives them permission in their minds to discuss within the church issues that the church has forbidden to be discussed for decades. So bringing up issues like masturbation and pornography and uh, issues related to brokenness in human sexuality, transgender issues, uh, same-sex attraction. If the pastor is not bringing these up from the main platform of the church, the church leaders do not feel permission to discuss it in smaller settings. The members struggling who desperately want those conversations to take place are not going to raise the issue. It's, it comes to us. But though we bear that burden as senior pastors, we also got to understand that every single time we raise those issues from the platform, you get nasty, nasty emails from church members who are only so happy to inform you that that issue should never be discussed and their mind's been offended. And, and so uh, it takes tremendous courage to pastor in this day and age, to be willing to preach expository sermons in this day and age in the middle of the sexual revolution. But it is a sacred trust between us and God, and we must. Yeah. John, any thoughts? And then to recognize that one of the qualifications to even be in that pulpit is that you are leading your family well. And if we work that backwards... Uh, our family is to inform how we pastor, and it is uh, the chief display of our ability to lead, how we're leading at home. And so to be an example to our people of leading our kids through that, of leading our wife well, of serving sacrificially, I think a, a pastor's family is on display. And, um, and telling them the stories, like you tell your church about your conversations with your kids so they know yeah. how to have those conversations with their kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're not perfect, by the way. We're leading uh, as broken people in a broken world, other broken people, to the one who can make them whole. And so to not set ourselves up as the perfect example, sure. however, we are trying to follow God's model, right? So I, I want to survey the whole panel for this next question, and we can bring up multiple, multiple things if you all want. Is I just want to see what you all identify as you think the greatest threats to godly manhood and fatherhood. When you look at the culture, what are the, what are the greatest challenges, greatest threats? Um, and just kind of, I, I want to get the collective wisdom of this panel. So I don't know who wants to go first, but John, okay. I, I am the greatest threat because in me dwells an idol that I want to bow down to every day. And I have to consistently crucify that idol and bow the knee to Christ and follow his model for my life. My kids, everything flows downhill from my leadership if I'm the proper leader of my home and I am the greatest threat to their godliness. And uh, if I'm not willing to crucify my own pride, my own selfishness, my own idolatry, how can I expect them to? So I think that's where we have to start, that we're sinners and we are called to the gospel every day. I think one of the uh, biggest obstacles for godly fatherhood um and i don't think this is one that we tend to ad admit very often but uh is just fear like fear of not understanding things not knowing how to have hard conversations with our kids not knowing uh how to approach situations whether it's new technology or things in culture that we didn't ever have to deal with i think there's a tendency for us to kind of like retreat from um approaching some of those hard situations i, I think across the board in the church fatherhood is is a very like scary sort of thing to do it really well and what that usually leads to is um kind of retracting yourself pulling away um maybe overworking or uh trying to compromise you know how much time you actually spend with your family fear i think has a, a lot of driving forces in causing us to go i don't know how to do this so instead of leaning into it instead of surrounding yourself with other wise fathers uh, we tend to kind of pull away. For us, me and Jamie uh, decided a, a couple years ago to seek out an older couple that had already walked through a lot of the hard stuff that we were about to walk through. They have kids that are post-college, and their kids are awesome. They love Jesus. They, they, they've, they've done a really great job parenting. And so to, to break through fear, we're not going to be scared of being a father and a mother. We're going to pursue relationships that can train us and teach us how to actually walk through some of these things. 
I think one of the big issues right now in our culture that impacts godly fathering is the indistinguishability of parenting. Mm. Um, fathers actually matter. Uh, fathers have a role different from mothers. Mothers matter too. Uh, and unfortunately, we live in a, in a sensitive age where when you dwell too much on the necessity of fatherhood, people view it as you're making motherhood expendable. No, I think that by and large, society has made fatherhood expendable. Uh, you see it in culture all the time. The dad is the punchline in the TV show or in the commercial. Uh, we see all the time uh, that people think uh, moms and dads have the exact same role. Um, the, the idea of a, a complementary male and female role in a household is under assault, uh, even within the church to some degree. Um, but men and women have different roles. Fathers and mothers have different roles. And uh, to make fathers expendable, we have a crisis of fatherhood in the country in secular society. And so many people within the church want to be liked within secular society uh, that they have a harder and harder time standing up to the secular pushback against fatherhood. And the church has to play a role in making fatherhood be something more than the punchline of a joke. And I don't know. I, it, it's, there's so many complexities to the brokenness of fatherhood. I, I would struggle to identify one thing. I, I, I do think, though, that there is a word of hope amidst that complexity and the brokenness of fatherhood, because I know there's probably a lot of people sitting here who did not grow up in a home where they saw godly fatherhood. And to Aaron's point, I mean, it's, it's so vital. To understand how to be a husband and father, it's so vital you saw one do it right. But the hope we have is that, that I think we often underestimate is that if we as men will truly seek the Lord to know him personally as more than a subject, but as a person that someone's mentioned a few minutes ago, like if we will seek to know him and walk with him in intimacy and in the power of the Spirit, even if we've never seen godly fatherhood, God will cause us to say the things we need to say to our children. He will bring to mind the things we need to think to do for our children. He will make the man out of us without us even realizing it if we will just trust him. Like We've we got to trust in the sufficiency of the Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That if we live in surrender with the filling of the Spirit, God will make a man out of us. Even if we've never seen it done right, even if we've been doing it the wrong way for two decades, it's never too late to say, starting now, I'm going to surrender to Christ, accept him as Savior and Lord. I'm going to find a healthy local church that teach me how to walk with God. I'm going to learn to walk with him, and he's going to make a man out of me. And he will. Eric, I'm actually struck by what you said about how there's kind of the indistinguishability of men and women and kind of the move towards androgyny. And Aaron, I want to pitch this question to you first, but feel free to jump in, is uh, discussing kind of gender roles and talking about the, the goodness and beauty of how God made us male and female. And how do we communicate that to our children? So from a young age, they're learning that how God made them as a girl or a boy is something that's good and purposeful. So, so how do we have those conversations? What's going on in the home? Yeah, I think the, the first aspect of that is to actually demonstrate it, to show it. I, I want my kids to, um, to see what it looks like to be um, a godly man. I want my boys to see that in me, and I also want my daughter uh, to, to know what that looks like. So when she starts dating, um, that's what she's craving and looking for. I also want my, my boys and my daughter to see what it looks like to be a godly woman who who is firm in her identity and who is passionate and vibrant and is leading and is using the skills and gifts that God has given her to actually um, do things for the kingdom. So I think first is just actually demonstrating it. For me and Jamie, like we, we want to we wanna show that. You know, we, we, there's th- this word complementarianism uh, that so many people are really scared of. And in a lot of ways, like even when I hear that word, I'm like, ooh, you know, because there's, there's been such a... Um, such a robbery of how beautiful it is to have that theology where male and female complement each other. That word complement is so great. I think about two colors that are complementary colors. They're both individually beautiful, but when you put those two complementary colors together, you're like, wow, there's something really magnificent when they're together. And that's what we want to show our kids. That's what we want to teach them. 
want them to be, I want my daughter to know, hey, you are meant to be a really strong, powerful leader, a force in this world that God's going to use to do incredible things. And I want you to resist any temptation to believe that because you're a woman, you can't do those things. I want to train them in that. And I want my boys to hear me do that in training her too. You know, I, it is fair to say, it sounds flippant, and I, I don't mean this to be flippant, it actually is true, that the loudest voices out there that gender is indistinguishable tend to be people who don't actually have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very loud. Any, I've got a, a girl and a boy. Anyone who has kids knows you can dress them all in neutral colors and not the blues and pinks, and the boys are eventually probably going to gravitate to the guns and pickup trucks and the girls to the makeup. They may not, but they, they probably are. Uh, in my house, my wife scares me. She's got more shotguns than me and owns a Harley. I bake. Um, <laughs> but we, we still have fairly defined parental roles. Uh, and the kids know them. And making sure they understand that we love each other and that they do have different roles. Um, my son is younger than my daughter. Uh, but I expect him to relate to his older sister in a way that I would expect any young man to treat a young woman. Mm. And they understand that in the house. Uh, We were actually driving down the road the other day, and he referred to his sister as ugly just to try to get under her skin. And it was one of those stop and pull the car over moments and and lecture him in the middle of the road when he thought he was being funny. They're teaching your children to relate to each other, not just civilly, um, but teaching them to relate to each other lovingly can be one of the hardest parts. But Girls and boys are different and respect the differences. I mean, one of the things we try to do, just besides obviously teach them, in, you know, like sit down, let us teach you the scriptures. This is what God says about sexuality. Your, your biology communicates to you the gender God intends for you. I mean, besides like formal sit down teaching, what we try to uh, combine with that is narrating life to them on the go. So I, I think that one of the jobs of the parent is to be the narrator of life for the child through our childhood so that as you're going through the day with your child in Starbucks in the line, when the transgender barista is fixing your drink, that you have a signal to your kid, pay attention to this person, but don't say anything. We're going to discuss it in the car. Mm. Then you give your kid the signal. They're checking out this person. As Eric said, your child knows there's something unnatural. They don't have to be told there's something unnatural. God has made them to know that's unnatural. So they're already dialing in that's, you know, their inner whatever's going off, like something's not right here, and you get back in the car, and, you know, then that's where you have the conversation. But, okay, that person is a woman. She's struggling. She's broken like all of us by the curse of sin. She wants to be a man, but we know God wants her to be a woman. And that's where you have that conversation. But now they see, now they've seen a transgender person and can attach it to what you've taught them in the Word of God. And this is a man... He, see, he and, he and mom and his wife don't live together because they got divorced. Remember when we were talking about it? And so there's just this ongoing narration of life in age-appropriate ways. It's what creates the critical thinking in your child's mind and allows them to intersect doctrine with real life. John, this next question is for you and, and for the whole panel afterwards. But uh, I, I want to talk about how men are known as characteristically strong and, and powerful how do we cultivate that strength to stand for the vulnerable and to stand for those who are in a weaker position? And, and I'm, I'm thinking especially right now in a, in a Me Too age, how do we train our young boys and our young men to respect women and to, to treat them with dignity and tender and care? Well, it starts in the home, right? Uh, you can't expect them to practice outside of the home what they're not seeing in the home. And so the care that a husband shows for his wife, I think is the primary sort of filter through which they see the world. I, uh, I love to come home and swat all the children away to get to their mother to kiss her, right? First thing that I do whenever I come home. Now, I'm not perfect at that. Sometimes the little one that has me wrapped around her finger, like she gets to me first. All right, so, but I love to kiss my wife And I know you're supposed to do that with your eyes closed, but occasionally I'll open my eyes and see my little girls behind her and their hearts are filled up as they watch dad love mother and the the sort of stability that that provides. But then also elsewhere besides just the husband-wife relationship, but brothers and sisters, great place 
to practice this. Sons, I expect you, when I'm not there, to be protecting your sister. And if you don't protect your sister, you've failed. To not speak up in the face of sin is sin itself. And I try to instill that in them uh, from a young age. To be a man is to be courageous for the truth. Any other thoughts? You have thoughts. Oh, that's well said. I, I think part of teaching our, our, our kids specifically how to be courageous and to, to look out for uh, injustice and to how, to how to fight for those that are um, vulnerable um, is for sure speaking it and, and training them with, with words and showing them what the scripture says about that, but then also exposing them to it, letting them see what's actually in the world and what people that are suffering, uh, what that actually looks like, actually taking them out of our country and, and taking them to another place and letting them see and experience empathy because empathy is ultimately like this thing that helps breed a compassion for people and a, a fight, getting in the fight against injustice. That's what helps fuel it. That's what it did for me. I knew the scripture and then God made me go to a different country and actually see it and experience and that produced in me a, a fight. Like I want to get in the fight and I want to do something about things that are not right. And so I think it's teaching and I think it's exposing our kids to it. Nathan, this question's for you is, and when we survey men, we always have these stories of, of men who had bad experiences with their fathers and there's father hunger and there's father wounds. But I know you have just a, a grand, exalted, you love your dad, you, you had a great dad. Can you just talk about how, you know, your dad's example has shaped your life and your ministry? I mean, can you give a sense of encouragement to what healthy fatherhood does for the next generation? Yeah, yeah. my father and I are very, very close, very close. We talk at least once a day. They live in our town. They're members of our church. I mean, we've, and we've always been very close. Obviously, apart from God himself working in my life, there's been no greater force upon my life towards godliness and loving the Lord than my dad. Every child has put in their heart from God this understanding that there's something about the role of father that just has tremendous influence in their life. It's like a special grace gifting God gives to the father. And because my father chose to walk in godliness, it, it just became a tremendous force upon my life to compel me towards God. And, and the, the funny thing is, dad grew up in a tremendously broken home. Uh, when he was two years old, his dad wanted to get rid of, my grandfather wanted to get rid of my dad and sent him to an, or gave him away to an orphanage in the neighboring country, like to never see him again. And my grandmother left her husband, my grandfather, to go get him and began living in that country to get my dad out of the orphanage. His father abused them, abused my grandmother, just and dad grew up just in a very ungodly pagan home. So he never saw it done right. He never saw godliness. He himself was only saved in his early 20s. So when he had me, he had only been a Christian a handful of years and didn't have a clue. But he chose to walk with God and to pursue intimacy with Christ. And he just trusted in the sufficiency of the Bible. When the Bible says to do this, he just did it. Childlike faith. Because of that, I received a godly father. God taught him what it's like to be a man. And, and here's the thing. I... Besides my fear of God, the greatest reason I don't look at pornography, cheat on my wife, why I'd never even think about hitting her is I'm scared of him. <laughs> like I, I don't want to disappoint him. Mm. I can't even fathom breaking his heart. Mm. And he never said a word to me about that. Mm. But because he walked in godliness, loved me, it's just, it is, it, he is a protection upon my life, a covering source of wisdom. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to explain it all. It's just, you cannot overstate the role of father in God's design. And that was a man who never saw it done right. Mm. Just childlike faith opened the Bible and trusted and obeyed. That's and beautiful. I'm the recipient of it. That's beautiful. I, I want to have the whole panel address this question. And I just want to talk about the issue of character. Is that our, our society, it doesn't really reward character. You can be a very unvirtuous person and still climb to the highest levels in society. So how do we, or, or why do we as men um, stand for virtue and stand for character? And, and, and why should we communicate this to the next generation? So, I mean, why have integrity as, as Christian men? 
I mean, we're at the very basics of what it means to be a Christian here. But Well, because every relationship is built on trust, and when trust is broken, there can't be a relationship. Integrity is at the core of every relationship. The book of James says wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. Before wisdom's anything, it's integrity. Hmm. So if we're going to be people and have a relationship with God or with fellow man, it starts with integrity, righteousness, holiness. So I, I, I don't know that I can answer this with, without touching on politics. It's what I do for a living. Uh, the number of people who tell me all the time that, that we have to be like them uh, that somehow we, we are virtuous and they're not, and we need to be like them. We need to be as cutthroat, as ruthless. You, you hear that in the, in the politics today of, of one political party saying, well, they're more ruthless than us. We should be like them. Um, if you think that character and the lack thereof is a tactic or strategy, uh, that speaks poorly of your character. Um, the, the civility that we have baked into society is a character trait. It's not a strategy. Mm. And if you're willing to abandon civility uh, to behave badly to advance your cause, well, you didn't have civility to begin with. Uh, and I, my kids and I have actually had this conversation this week uh, on that very subject, uh, that you're, you should show people more forgiveness and more grace than you ever expect them to show you. And you should never be willing to be as bad as you think someone else is because you see that to your advantage because it may be to your short-term advantage, uh, but you will be held accountable eventually. Uh, and people who think that they can abandon being a good person to get ahead now, maybe so, but there comes a last day and they will be held accountable. We can be as intentional as we want to be with our kids, with our spouse, with our home, with whatever ministry platform we have. But if we, have, if we don't have integrity, if we don't have character, We've got nothing. They'll abandon it. Wags was talking about last night how a guy uh, threw away the multiplication table because his father uh, didn't have integrity in the home, and his father had baked into him the multiplication table. It's fundamental to what we have. There's just no way around it. And so if we want to create children that function in the world and understand rightly who God is and what it means to love him, uh, character and integrity are at the core of that. I agree with all of that. I'll just add this one thing. Um, I think the, the reason that we have to, like, we have to keep reminding ourselves why we are spending so much time teaching our kids integrity and character is not because I want them to leave my home and be a great CEO of a company or I want them to go be a really strong leader or I want them to be successful in life, even though I do hope that they're successful in life. The reason is because I know I have this very, very short window to help train up missionaries that leave my home and give their life for the sake of the gospel because I want them to want people to know and worship Jesus Christ. So the reason we train our kids, the reason we, we hope that good character is formed in them is because I got this really short window and then they're, they're going to leave and they're hopefully going to go be missionaries that take the gospel to people. That takes character. It takes integrity. It takes a heart that's like, focused on the Lord and submitted to him. So that, that's, it's easy just to kind of forget why we're doing what we're doing. We're doing this because we want people to know Jesus. Well, I have time for one more question before we conclude. And, and I, I want to end on a very high note here. And, and every single person in the world, every single man in this room, is, is shaped and driven by some type of imagination, some vision, some goal. And, and some concept of joy is usually at the center of that. And I just want to survey this panel and ask you, as a man and as a husband, um, what brings you the greatest joy? And I know the answers up here are probably going to be pretty similar from one panelist to the next. But it, we, we want to send the listeners out with a vision towards what God has, has built for us as men that not only brings him glory, but brings us joy. So what brings you all joy as men and as fathers and as husbands? Well, as a, as a husband and a father, I think Matt Carter, Aaron's pastor, said it best one time when I heard him say it. He said, as a husband and a father, when I die, all I want to know is that my wife and kids will say, he loved Jesus and he loved us. My kids wanting to spend time with me. I grew up with a dad who worked offshore. He was gone seven days. When he came home, he was exhausted. Um, and... He slept a lot when he was home, and it was understandable given his job. He ran oil platforms in the Middle East. Um, but man, having my kids come home from school and want to play, uh, 
with me. Um, honestly, my nine-year-old is a bit stalkerish about it. I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> need a restraining order against him, especially out of school yesterday because of the hurricane. I was kind of glad to get on a plane because you can only play blackjack so many times with a nine-year-old before it gets exhausting. But having Man. them want to play with me, uh, to want to spend time with me, uh, is that that makes me happy. John, uh, as a pastor, I think I have. Um, a liability in that my kids could see my serving the church um, in a joyless way and think somehow that this is the job that he can't do anything else, right? He has to be a pastor because he couldn't, couldn't do anything else. I want them to see that my job as a pastor, my role as a father, my role as a husband is, is born out of a heart that takes great delight and joy first and foremost before anything else in who God is and a joy as a son of God. And so, um, so I, think that, I think primarily what I want my kids to know is exactly what Matt Carter uh, was teaching, that my joy is primarily found in Christ, not in them, not in their mother, not in my job, but in Christ and who I am. Yeah, uh, so having three teenagers, we're in the season right now where um, some days we find so much joy in them. They're just fun to be around. And then the very next day, it's like, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? You're super weird and you're moody. And so I think we're, we're having to keep in front of us, like the, the thing that brings us joy in our kids truly is when they start to figure out, this is what I'm good at. This is what God kind of made me to do. This is what I'm wired to do. And I want to figure out how to use that to help people know Jesus. We're seeing that in some of our kids right now, and it is incredible for them to go, huh, I'm really good at this, and also love Jesus, and so I want to figure out how to make those things connect. I see that in my wife. That, that's one thing that brings me joy as a husband right now is to see my wife go, I feel like I'm really good at this, and I really want people to know Jesus, and wow, if I put these two things together, God can use me in an extraordinary and a unique way. That just makes me happy. That makes me proud of my wife and my kids. That brings me joy, you know, and so I think the, all of the years of hard work as a parent where you're laying some of those foundational things, it, it, it's worth it because that's what we're hoping for our kids, that those two things would collide and they would spend their whole life doing that. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Would you join me in thanking our panelists? Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and leave us a review. And join us next week as we learn how our views of life, marriage, and religious liberty shape our political outlook.